Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome, this is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, and DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manischel, I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently making others, including a movie called Best Friends Forever. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome filmmaker Alicia J. Rose and creator star Alicia Joe Rabins to talk about their work on their film A Caddish for Bernie Madoff, which is a hybrid of musical memoir and narrative fantasy, which sounds incredible. After that, we play another round of The Game. But first, Liz, what's going on with you? Oh, crap. Crap, I didn't prepare this part. Uh, damn it. That was good. That was a good intro, though. What, what do I say? Things are going well with me. I am, I don't know, Ulrich. I'm like, what do I have to say in life? I'm thinking of starting to write a holiday rom-com. I'm doing lots of creative pre-production-y developing menty stuff with my horror film, Best Friends Forever with Amy Taylor. I'm going on hikes. I'm eating pizza. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to say in this segment. How are, how are you? How are, <laughs> How is your life? Good. I think it's funny that you like decided to add just yet another creative project onto your tall plate. This is what I do. This is me. Creative. You just so many things going on. Well, I don't know. You probably know, but I met with Clara. Clara. Clara Bill. Clara. Clara Bill. I'm saying you're all wrong. I. I'm not positive, but she listens to the podcast, so I hope so. Hi, Clara. She does. Clara is so sweet. I had a great meeting with her, and this was like for me to potentially become a producer on a movie that you're directing that I would help produce. And I mean, God, Clara, what an amazing person. She had such great energy. And it was kind of those of those meetings where you talk to somebody, you're like, yeah, this movie will be made. Like, she will because make of her. it. Because yeah, of her. like, yeah. She, for sure. Like, she's got it. You know, she was like, I just need to know what to do. Give me a game plan and I'll do whatever you want I'll, to make it happen. Like, I can do all these things. And I'm like, okay, you can do all the right things. You need someone to tell you how to do these things. I can potentially be this person. But like, like my immediate like drive and thought was like, yes, I will produce this movie and I will be there every day and I am going to be the person to make this movie happen. And then like I like thought of that for a minute and I'm like, even if this is in 2024, I have two babies, I have a full time job and I can take time away from said job. But, you know, if I'm going to take time away from said job, I have to be able to what I make doing that has to equal leaving said job for time. And this movie is not going to equal that, you know? <laughs> and then on the other hand, it's like, well, do I want to be a producer of movies as my full-time main thing? Is that my passion in life? And it's like, well, that's like, no, not really. I mean, I would, I love to produce the movies and I enjoy it and I will do it in the future, but it's not what I want my life to be. So it's like, 
it just didn't add up enough to like leave everything to be that person mm-hmm. or or even com- like commit even like to because you could I should say now I'd be like yeah sure I will be that person and then in, in a year I could be like and you have to find someone else but I don't want to be that person either right I want to you know be super honest and forthcoming and everything and I haven't even really told her this yet she'll hear it on the pod wait maybe not I probably will talk to her before this comes out but I am going to help so I'm, I'm turning the gears on how I can help. I have a couple of things. I'm actually going to have a phone call later today about it. So we'll see. We'll see how, how it goes. But I, I basically feel like like even if I am not going to be a big part of it, like I could probably at least give her the game plan. Be like, do these things. Yeah. These are the things you're going to do. Consulting like, producer. I can say, I, Why not? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I can take like a, a credit or whatever. And maybe if there's a little tiny bit of money somewhere for me, like a little fee or what, I'm sure, great. But I mean, that's not why I'd be doing it. I'd be doing it because I want to help this person make this movie. And like, you're already a part of it. So I was telling her, like, she's already super in a great position because she has oh. you she has other people thank you she's found a really great director which is like the hardest thing to do i think in a lot of ways so i i feel like super confident in the the, the whole thing i just and i know she'll do it i just like i think i could probably help her do it but there's if this phone call i have later today goes well i could probably help her in a much bigger way but we'll see fingers crossed how it goes i don't want to really say my plans or my schemes because they may not come out fruitful but yeah so that was fun that was a fun conversation it was also fun to like go through the process of like i'm in to like i can't be in all the way but i can do these things to help and be a part of it still you know know it's funny it's like normally i'm like Ulrich, say no to everything unless it brings you joy like you know and i I say yes to a lot of things, but there's like a, a strategy and they're always things that are not happening in the next three months or six months or whatever, right? <laughs> there right. are things that are happening in like 10 years. But in this circumstance, I'm like, oh, I hope he doesn't say no. I hope he doesn't take my advice. <laughs> <laughs> like, I hope he's involved. And I think just to give, I know this is becoming the Clara, the Clara section. The film is called The Come Up and it's, I like to pitch it as kind of like a, a bridesmaid's wine country type of film and Clara is a wonderful stand-up comedian in the Bay Area and a writer and we met her or I met her through a guest that you brought on to the show a zero gravity manager so it's just interesting how like the podcast interweaves in and out of our world but I just wanted to pimp out Clara and I'm going to share her website really quickly it's iloveclara.com and everyone should check out her work she's very funny one of the reasons why I mean I was gonna take the call no matter what but like I watched some of her stand-up when we were like you know or arranging the call and she's very funny yeah and she had a really great Alameda joke that I really enjoyed and I almost sent to all my Alameda friends I have a bunch of friends who like were born and raised in Alameda and basically will never leave Alameda you know they, they were like they will like die rather than not own a house in Alameda somehow you know <laughs> It's so funny because like it's it's just like this this such a commitment to a place that is lovely. I don't know if you've been to Alameda. Alameda I don't think I have. It's a lovely place, but it's it's only so lovely. It's not like (laughs) the loveliest. There are barriers. There's a cap to the loveliness. I mean, it's definitely gotten like more commercial and bigger and. You know, it's the same thing that happens to every place where it's like just like, you know, bigger and less homey. But it does have a lot of the original businesses and nice hominess to it still, too. But it's just, you know, it's getting more, more popular, I guess. And so like lots of people are coming in there as a desirable place and it's very expensive to live, which I think is part of her joke. Anyways. Yeah. So what else is going on with me? I haven't been writing. 
I've been thinking about it a lot. Yeah, I, I wrote a l- tiny little bit on it on my movie the other day. That was like two weeks ago. But I mean, at least I'm kind of it's in my stratosphere of things to do, which is nice. No news on the other movie. And oh, I wanted to talk about some things that were like unrelated to anything movie wise. <laughs> but I just <laughs> you can relate to this. So my life has been pretty funny the last couple of days. So I'm like in the midst of like trying to decide on preschools or daycare mostly daycare. It's not really preschool. It's more like daycare. And like realizing that it's basically just not affordable to me. (laughs) It's just too expensive. Yeah. And like there was one that we're like, we could probably make this work. And then I was realizing that my, that Beth, my wife's going to take four months off when our second kid is born. And then it was like, okay, so we could maybe, maybe we'll make it work. But then I was realizing, oh, so if we drop off our little kid, BB at daycare at eight, and then pick her up at 3.30, that means on those two days, I have to be with my son by myself from 8 a.m. or even earlier to 3.30 p.m. Like, how is that possible? Like, how could I possibly do my he's job? he's going to be like a little potato. He's going to be like a little he'll, dumpling who's just like, he'll feed be a me, little, feed me Yeah, exactly. Dumpling. But I was wondering, like, is it better to have dumpling potato for seven hours? <laughs> or is, is it better to have dumpling potato and little girl who's getting more and more independent and can play by herself oh. for for no. five hours Why is, what? She, <laughs> Wait, because and then she, but, but she's gonna be asleep for like two of them so it's no. really like two but two you can't three rely hours on that. and then she's gonna grow out of that and she but the older they get the more demanding they get i say take that little dumpling potato and just feed it every two wow. hours or whatever you need to do and then you have silence hopefully unless you have a colicky baby because they sleep so much. You'll be fine. Yeah, but they sleep, but like they sleep for like 30, 40 minutes at a time. So you have to like get them up all over the place, you know? Like it just seems so much more stressful. Oh, I just don't remember. Like, I don't remember you know, that at all. Well, at least that was with my baby. I mean, because oh. she slept four naps at first, and then it was like three naps, and then it was three naps for a really long time, and then it was two naps for a really long time. And now it's, and it went to one nap way earlier than a lot of people. Yeah. But yeah, but the four nap period, that's the one I'm worried about where they're just sleeping all the time. And it's like, you know, maybe it's a 30 minute nap. Maybe it's a 45 minute nap, you know, and then like if they even go down, you know, when they're supposed to. So I don't know. It just seems we'll see. We're going to we're going to try it out. We'll see how it happens. Minimize your responsibility if you're working at home is how I feel. Yeah. Well, the time will be shorter. So that's what it feels minimal because it's like less time where I'm responsible versus more time where I'm responsible. So it feels like that seems better in a way. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it shakes out. (laughs) Because our son's going to be in TK next year. So, okay, I'm, I'm doing August. In September, Colin will be starting TK. And that goes until like 3.30, similarly to your daycare. And then my plan is, yeah, just to work while the baby naps and figure out a balance for the first six months of working and taking care of the baby at the same time. Mm. And then my daycare, we started calling at 10 months at daycare, but there are tons of babies at like three months at that daycare. Mm. So like I'm thinking around six months, we'll start daycare. And then I'll have both babies out of the house unless we inevitably get sick every two days. Mm. And then every all hell breaks loose, which is the fun <laughs> part. Right, exactly. 
Yeah, I, I we just toured a daycare that has six weeks as the earliest they've had. Yeah, at their I don't want to do it's that, like, but I, I respect whoa, it. Like <laughs> game, respect game. <laughs> I yeah. respect that, but I I don't want to do that. I'm I'm thinking the earliest would be three months. Did you see? I don't know if it's brawl and cell block, whatever, or dragged across concrete. Have you seen this? No, no. There's this amazing scene with Jennifer Carpenter where she leaves the house for the first time after giving birth, and it's like the whole scene is like her not wanting to leave and then when she leaves something horrible really really does happen wow wow (laughs) it's like don't watch that okay (laughs) i won't watch that whatever that is don't watch anything yeah stop watching things the other thing i wanted to say was i was watching tv last night and my projector bulb exploded so that was fun but uh <laughs> it's just like what was my this today this morning i was like okay sure oh. all right well we got it cleaned up and like luckily i have another projector that was my old projector so i was able to switch out projectors and we still watched picard you know so that was cool but now i have to fix this projector so i kind of feel like everything the sky is falling in a lot of ways it's like everything's yeah. breaking and needs to be fixed and you know but eh, it's fine life will go on but look you know? yeah you had another projector i mean that is sean's wet dream is having a projector <laughs> <laughs> so I can give all kinds of projector recommendations when you're ready to go project. I'm not ready. Well, I don't think we have the depth. We don't have a, a room with the depth uh, that we can make it work. Yeah. Maybe if we yeah. kind of rearrange some things, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. We basically have, it's the right up to where we can get a hundred inches. Like there's like basically, or 90 inch, whatever it is. It's like mm-hmm. right. Like there's not any more room. It's, it's only because there's a fan. If the fan wasn't there, there'd be more room. But the stupid yeah. fan is blocking my, my projector dreams. Anyways, don't let yourself block your dreams of supporting us on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash podcast. This is the way the show will continue. This is the way where, <laughs> between the two of us, we have four kids. We can still make this oh, podcast Eric happen. Oh, has two kids. So there's oh, six, six kids. Oh, six kids. Oh, my God. Between the three of us, there's six children in the world to feed. revolving around this podcast. So, God. yeah, if you, any support you give would be great. And then what you get for that support, you get to see our weekly meetings, which they they would die down for a minute, but they just came back. And there's going to be one posted later today. And then, yeah, also all the back episodes, episodes like one through 350, whatever it is, like you will have access to those, which you do not have access to those now, or at least not most of them. So... That is the way to help us, and it'll also help you listen to more of the podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io. They're a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on a high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, or global brands like DJI. They even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty great. So use our code MMIH to get 20% off your full-year subscription today. But without any more delay, here is Liz's chat with Alicia J. Rose and Alicia Joe Ravens. Could each of you introduce yourselves and your title in your own voice? I'm Alicia Joe Ravens. I'm the creator and star and composer and co-EP. And in this interview, you, you'll hear my my collaborator, who's also on this interview, refer to me as Ajo, which is what she called me on set since we have the same name. And I'm Alicia J. Rose. I am the director, editor, co-screenwriter, and many other things for A Cottage for Bernie Madoff. I am sometimes referred to as Aro because we have two Alicias. Sometimes we're referred to as the Alicias. 
Can one of y'all give me the elevator pitch for a Kaddish for Bernie Madoff? Not it. H-O. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I called to you. <laughs> so it's a super indie yet accessible art film that is about my story of working in an empty office in a sort of abandoned office on Wall Street making art through an artist residency during the year that Bernie Madoff is revealed to have created the largest scam in financial history. And basically my coming to terms with what that means through doing a bunch of research and writing songs in the voices of the people that I that I interview. I think we call it a metaphysical metamusical or something like that. <laughs> no, I think, no, we, the, we also call it a mystical metamusical about the greatest financial fraud in history, though with recent things, hard to say how long it will be the greatest fraud of financial history. Yeah, <laughs> big one though. But really... I, I, I often describe it as like an artist's journey through collective trauma that happens to take place during the crash of the of Wall Street. And, you know, it involves a, a woman, Alicia Joe Ravens, it's a true, true story of her experience being in an abandoned office of a Wall Street building through an artist residency. And she gets completely blindsided by everything that's going on around her and create sort of a meta musical while she's there. And we made a movie starring her about it. That is sort of, you know, it's, there's a slice of meta that's in even the making of it. So it's kind of a fun multi-layered thing. Now, was that like the worst elevator pitch, Liz? Oh my God, oh. we are so bad at this. No, I really like this. And also I just like the life that you two are giving because these could get really kind of static and kind of boring. So please feel free to have that kind of volleying. Well, how many days did you shoot? Which I know is a also not just a cut and dry answer. I can answer that. I, you know, really something like 13, maybe give or take a couple days because we wound up using some footage that was in our concept trailer that we didn't necessarily intend to use in the final film. But that shoot was, I think, three days in New York. And then we did principal photography, which is, I think, about 10 days in Portland, maybe a little less thereabouts. And then we did a couple more days in New York. So something something there. But, you know, because we cherry picked some footage from the stab in the dark, as is a concept trailer. You know, some of the most beautiful footage, that incredible view of Wall Street that we have in the film at sunset, you know, this view of seeing behind Ajo's shoulder. We got we got that whole location for free because our cinematographer's friend lived in an apartment in that building <laughs> and let us in there. So one of many stories we can tell you about how hard making movies is. I also, I also just want to say in our defense, we're working on a new project now and I feel like we're really good at that elevator pitch. We already forgot how to talk about <laughs> <laughs> We're not just idiots. Well, that okay, that, of course not. But I will get in two questions that will be clarified how long you've been working on Kaddish, right? Because I think people need to know. Yeah. But briefly, what can you say about the rough budget of the film? That's a good question, an interesting conversation, because... You know, we we kind of had to make a big decision, and I'll speak on behalf of Laura Cuddy, our producer, who's incredible. You know, we had sort of X amount pulled together. Part of it was money from Ajo's kind of grant funds. Part of it was money she put in on her own. I put in on my own. We had an incredible funder patron that came to the table to match our crowdfunding funds. So within that, you know, and then there was a little more at the end and pushing and, you know, 
I think ultimately it was under 150, probably closer to 115, 120, something in that zone. And we've actually made a little tiny bit of money back, believe it or not. So, you know, ultimately, but really it's a micro budget film. I think that qualifies, right? Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) I'll answer that for you. And between us, we were, you know, it's based on a solo theater show that I created. So it's my IP. I was the composer. I was the star. Alicia, my my co-Alicia was director and editor. And then our co-partner, Lara Cuddy, was producer. And so we all between us, you know, were able to also make the trailer without any additional cost. Like we kind of put in so much labor that that was an amazing way to keep our costs low. And it was COVID. So we got paid by the government to sit around and have, thank God we had this project. So, you know, we literally like we wrapped production in November of 2021 in New York thinking 2019. Tw- 2019. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. 2019. That's correct. So we got really lucky in that we wrapped production in November of 2019, right before COVID. Ajo was going on another trip and as she is one to do, she's like, oh, I'm going to be somewhere. Why don't we also film part of the movie or why don't we film part of the series or why don't we film something else? And I love that spirit that she's got and I will get on a plane. So I'm totally down with that. And we're like, yeah, let's let's just let's do it because we had spent the whole summer of 2019 making the film. Now, I know I said we only filmed for 10 days. That doesn't sound like the whole summer, but we actually got our location for pretty much the whole summer for free another incredible gift that made the movie possible. So we were able to spread production out. We did just five days of music videos only, and then took like a break of three weeks or four weeks and then got ready for the other side of production, took our sets down for the music videos and rebuilt our sets in the same building basically, and then came back to it for another five, four or five days. Then we did that again, then came back to it again for a couple days to film like the elevator scene that's in the film and the party scene. So it was really like unbelievably luxurious as if we had a real budget, but we just happened to have an incredible arts loving person who owns buildings and is a big part of sort of the Portland cultural scene here. His name is Brian Wanamaker and he happens to own this building, the Falcon Arts building. And just to add another little moment of hilarity of making movies, that particular building, which happens to be the former home of Pacific Northwest College of Arts, but is an original office building from the early 1900s. Like Mm -hmm. it's got a history that in some ways is similar to the story of the movie, but we had lost our primary location 10 days or maybe less before we even got this location. So we had something totally different in mind. It fell apart. I happened to know this guy. He had let me locations in the past. I was like, it's a long shot. And he's like, yeah, you can, not only can you use this building, but you know, we've got three floors empty. Sure, Alicia, come on in. And we're like, what is happening? And then it happened and we're like, so we got to do this incredible thing. It wasn't like we just got together and made it in 10 days. We really had three months that we did 10 or 12 days in spread out with pre-production and reproduction every single time. And I I should say we live in Portland, Oregon and the community here like really, really stepped up and just amazing artists who collaborated with us. I think we were able to pay almost everyone, but but like very, very indie rates. (laughs) So yeah. Well, we just got a taste of some of the timeline, but one of our questions is just to give people a scope of, how long it takes to make movies, right? So like this one woman show, creator, star, Alicia, when did you, when were you inspired to write that, right? And then let's do the math of kind of the, I do want to hear, and maybe we can, 
even insert when you two met each other into that timeline? Yeah, so I got the idea in 2009. In 2010, I got a grant to support my creating the theater show, and it was a two-year grant. So that culminated in 2012, which is when I premiered the theater piece at Joe's Pub in New York, where I was living at the time. And then I moved to Portland at the beginning of 2013 and kind of continued to develop the piece. The theater piece staged it a few times in Portland and toured it a little bit. And then I think it was probably 2017 when I decided I was done touring it. It might've been 2018 and I wanted to document it. And it basically in the process of looking for people to document the theater show, long story short, I met with Alicia and she had this vision of actually turning it into a feature film instead. And so about an hour after first meeting, we were kind of like off to the races. <laughs> I can add into the preposterous of that. Basically, I'd heard about the show, Akata Shabrini Madoff, her performing it around town and I'd heard really good things. And so it was bummed that I'd missed it. And then she reached out to me kind of out of the blue and I was really intrigued. She's like, oh, I'll pay you 50 bucks an hour for three hours to just tell me what to do with this, you know, videography of the show. And I was like, oh, I'll do anything for money, basically. I mean, come on, let's come down to it. Any filmmaker will. 50 bucks an hour is a pretty fair rate. I thought, yeah, let's do it. So, you know, then she sent me the requisite material for that. She sent me multiple other versions of videography of the show, the album, which was already on Spotify, like just, you know, lots of stuff. It wasn't just like a little camcorder thing you know it was pretty in a pretty advanced way already documented it and I don't know I just kind of fell in love with it was the problem <laughs> the problem that became the solution I did I love the songs I'm a huge music nerd I have 20 plus years in the music business in my history and I'm a musician so you know the songs the fact that there were songs was really interesting to me I love the story I thought you know this one woman show is great but you're going to do videography like this is a great story. Like, that's not enough. Like, you know, this people care about cared about this in the first place when you did it as a live show. You know, they felt it. I heard good things. I really am enjoying what I've watched, but it's not enough. Like, just getting more cameras and doing the same thing again. Why would you do that? So basically, the problem is I immediately felt something for the piece. And I felt an interest from just a fan's perspective in a way or an audience's perspective of like, there's more that you could give to the story because it's really a timeless story of an artist's journey through a lot of bullshit that like gets rained on all of us. And so I really connected that to my own experiences, to the moment, you know, just coming out of Trump, which was a, a nightmare in, you know, in 2019 and, you know, like all these things. So I walked in totally not expecting for the next, I don't know, era of my life to be <laughs> collaborating with Alicia Joe Raven, somebody with my same name. And then I found out later that she had gotten an erroneous email. That's how she knew about me in the first place. So I, I blindsided pitched her. I am not somebody that considers myself a blindsided pitching person, although it sounds so badass. Maybe I should just own it. It's like total imposter syndrome, but I did it. And here we are. <laughs> I have 45 questions, but I will ask this one question before I get to that point. If either of you could change one thing about the process, sure. about the film, about whatever, is is there something that you, I'm not even going to give you an out. What would you change? I know my answer. It's a very late in the process answer, but we have these like, to be quite honest, because I know we're talking to fellow filmmakers. Uh, we have like this issue with our DCP file. Freaking moment of the process. We like labored over every second of this film. We poured every our hearts into it for years, and then somehow there's some out. problem with the export where 
we go to oh. a beautiful theater and we start screening the DCP. And oh. every time there's a different thing that like either a little section's oh. off sync or the soundtrack's playing at a third of the oh. volume, which is not good in a music film or any film. So that is my, that, that's my, that's the thing I'd like to change. <laughs> Liz, there's a ghost in the machine and we don't understand. And it's fine on Apple and streaming all over the North America, but for some, for cock reason, there's like, I, there's literally a ghost in the machine and we do not know what's going on. It has been a little bit different in all these different theaters. Sometimes it's fine. Anyway, so I think that, you know, we would go back and spend a lot more time vetting the DCP, testing it, making sure, because now we're doing that, but we basically had the majority of our theatrical now. So if we're still doing things, we can talk about that later. But, you know, it was fine until it wasn't. Then it got really weird and we've been on a psychedelic torture journey. Most audiences don't even notice it. So it's you know one of those things that most audiences, it doesn't even strike them as a thing. But us as people who, especially me being the editor and Ajo being the musician and composer on top of the creator and the star, like we are deep nerds for the sound and the pictures always look beautiful, never a problem. But the sound for some reason, because of the DCP mix or the digital mix, we don't even know, like it is wildly varied. So I think DCPs should be stopped. <laughs> It's their fault, not ours. No, no, it's probably our fault, but still. That was the worst. That has been the worst part of it. I have like a full outline. And then the more you talk, the more I'm like, okay, I have to ask about this. I have to ask about this. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to a question that I didn't even write down and I just because I'm I'm hearing both of you and I'm feeling like there's some sort there's this magical conviction that both of you had to put this out into the world. And I, I know each of you kind of have already shared why, like why it got under your skin. But is there anything we haven't talked about? I mean, it's it's 14 years for you, creator star Alicia. It's five years for you, director, editor Alicia. That's a, that's such a meaningful amount of time to to work with a stranger to on a subject <laughs> that like maybe someone would hear and say, well, that was 2008, like get over it. Like, I don't know what kind of reaction other people have to the material, but clearly it's incredibly compelling because it's had this long life, whatever. Sorry, I will stop waxing and vamping. I just am curious, is there something that pulled you along this long to keep going with the project? Well, I'll say one, I'll say a couple things. So I, just as a, by way of background, I come out of the world of creative writing, specifically poetry, and out of the world of music, specifically like originally classical violin and composition, and then later touring with bands and more like sort of songwriting. And so for me, writing this theater piece was the first time I had worked in the mode of theater. And, you know, now as a sort of mid-career artist, I'm just, I've just accepted about myself that like, I love to work in new mediums. I don't really like to get comfortable. Like once I get comfortable, I sort of like to push myself to do something that I don't know how to do. And so I I wanted to document the, the theater piece because I felt like I was done, not with theater, but with that piece. I felt like, okay, I can't really do much more with this. And, and then what Alicia came along with was there were two things. One was the idea of working in film, which I have never done. And it was absolutely incredible. And it's a medium that I've always loved, but never even considered working in because I have no directorial skills. I'm not really like, you know, I love visual art, but I don't really work in visual media. And so the thought of getting to 
work with someone with Alicia's skill set and and really be true partners on creating something, you know, telling the story in that medium was a huge infusion of new energy and excitement for me, even though the story I had already told. And the other thing is that Alicia really, and maybe you want to talk about this more, Alicia, but she had this big picture perspective that, yeah, the story itself happened in 2008 of like, you know, made off scam coming out. But really, it was kind of like prefiguring what we were dealing with in 2019 with Trump. And a lot of just general kind of like corruption and emperor has no clothes awfulness that was happening in our society. And that really opened my eyes because I had been so focused on the Madoff story that I had not seen all the connections with what was happening around us. But through Alicia's vision, I saw that we could focus on this story, but also be subtly (laughs) trying to comment on what we were going through societally at the exact moment. So it didn't feel like an old story. Well, and I, I asked as we went into the adaptation process, turning it from a theater piece into a film, I really pushed us, I tried to push Ajo, I pushed us in general to bring it forward into now. Because I thought, you know, Bernie Madoff is one of those criminals that once he dies, and ironically, he did die right after we had our very first festival premiere. Once he dies, he'll probably be swept under the rug on some level or not or whatever. But what's it going to mean in the long run? Like, is is it is it he literally my question to her was, is he an aberration or a trend? And I and she wrote a song kind of with that in mind to bring us to now to leave the audience with that. Yeah, it happened 2008. It probably happened in, you know, 1902. It probably happened. Like they all, there's so many different ways this has happened, right? It's happening now. Sam Bank, Sam Bankman Freed, or in a more disturbing sense, Harvey Weinstein, or all these house of cards that have been built on, you know, entitlement and lies and nothing. And it's not just him. So to me, the thing that made it compelling wasn't even really Bernie Madoff. It was, it was Alicia Joe's parsing of how to deal with it, it through her religion, through her spirituality, through her creativity, and also thinking about what it meant to be Jewish in the context of dealing with a collective criminal, a criminal created, sorry, a criminal who perpetrated collective trauma on all of us out of their, you know, willingness to not ever tell people what they didn't want to hear. You know, that's something now I, I saw a million times up till then, not as bad, but my goodness, we couldn't have known how many times we'd see it since. Mm. Well, and let's let's talk about the Jewishness of the film too, because I know it it takes there's a part where it where it influences distribution festivals. But I have a question that maybe I'll kind of fold into this, which is like how do you make a movie with no comps? And how do you make a movie like, like, we, you know, all of us work together in pitching this film in the the world of distribution. And maybe there are some films that you can pull from, but it is an incredibly unique movie. I mean, even when we were talking about the elevator pitch, it's tough, right? It's tough to sum it up in one sentence. And then also like to build in something so found foundationally important to a lot of people, you know, the Jewish religion, the Jewish culture. I'm just curious, like, how did, how much did religion play in the film for both of you? And then also as we transition to our conversation about distribution and festivals. Yeah, well, so the story of my, my whole career as an artist, and maybe we can talk about this in the distribution context when we transition to that, but I have been working, my kind of day job that I'm passionate about <laughs> is that I'm a, I'm a kind of progressive feminist Jewish educator. So I teach about Jewish traditions and rituals, and I officiate rituals, and I teach Bar Mitzvah and B'nai Mitzvah students, and I give lectures.
teachers. And so everything from like kids to kind of academic stuff. And that really gets into my artwork too. And I really love to draw on, especially kind of reinvestigating ancient Jewish ideas through a lens of feminism. And I really love Jewish mysticism. So I, I like to look at places where kind of esoteric mystical ideas might intersect with the world in front of us. So definitely with the, the Madoff film, I was looking at Kabbalistic ideas of interconnectedness and kind of energetic interconnectedness with like literal financial interconnectedness of how the stock market touches everyone in some way. So yeah, for me, it's really, you know, I definitely make art that's not about <laughs> Jewish themes, but it really is a, something that I come back to. It's really kind of rich, like spiritual and intellectual terrain that I really love to come back to over and over again. And, and my career has very much been a little bit of a continuum between like the kind of ritual and teaching on one side and then writing, performing and art making on the other side with Judaism flowing back and forth between the two. Or Alicia, director, writer, do you, do you want to add anything? You don't have to. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I come from a really different place than Ajo. And I think part of our different places really in some ways gave the film its spark a lot of ways because my interest i'm also jewish but i came from a very like my family was super kind of semi-orthodox my grandfather was a very misogynistic kind of dude he definitely didn't make judaism into something i ever really wanted to do but i went to temple my whole life up until i was about 10 or 11 12 kind of and it just like it was intense for me it wasn't fun it was wasn't really spiritual it was sort of abusive in a way so so i felt culturally jewish my whole life but i haven't necessarily felt safe enough to explore judaism the way that i've always wanted to which is from a feminist perspective and a modern perspective and a culturally relevant perspective and one of the things that really spoke to me about alicia joe's point of view with this project was just that you know she is uh, kind of coming from a not as raised as jewish as me but like really with a more present frame of mind really just diving into this and giving me a safe space to sort of explore my own Jewishness again. And so I was able to ask questions about things and learn kind of the things that I had avoided my for many, many years and tried to forget in a way. I tried to learn them in a new way and to, you know, feel safe enough to do that. So in a way, it was a healing process for me and my own sort of spirituality and, and feelings about Judaism because she is as much as she is a wonderful creator and star of this piece, she also is a freaking, you know, Jewish uh, scholar. And, and, you know, she teaches bar mitzvah students how to read from the Torah. I mean, you know, if I had found her when I was 13, I might have gone a very different direction. So I became a total heathen, <laughs> you know, so, so I feel like that's something kind of amazing. And I really wanted to capture that in the film because there's something that's really genuine. And the fact that she was game to even be in the film at all, meant we might be able to make a film you know what do you do with this right it's kind of a it's a it's an interesting one-of-a-kind story that you know half of it's music that for me was actually a comfort that half of it was music because i at that point i'd made probably 30 plus music videos in my life for all kinds of artists from cake to first aid kit to bob mold i made five or six for him a million of them that was like my bread and butter because i came from the music world and so the fact that there were eight or nine ten songs in this i was like oh yeah i know well here's here's a movie we could make even on day one i was like you know it can be these music videos maybe you could play yourself you could play these characters because i want to know who these characters are and then we can wrap it around with kind of a narrative you know story about you being there and then you know have there be some sort of you know spirit you know kind of like educational spiritual moments and then 
I think maybe that basic pitch was sort of what I was thinking. And in a way, that's sort of what it turned into, plus a lot more. But yeah, so safe space, good vibes, music videos. And even though it's a film that is really hard to comp compare to other films, the fact that it was a Jewish film and could rely, I mean, there's a lot of people don't even know about the Jewish film festival circuit. And they don't even know that there's like a, a really meaningful culture around Jewish film festivals around the world. Can you speak a little bit about how you approach Jewish film festivals and then how that led to distribution opportunities? And just just quickly, this is so much, this is Jewish film and more. And I don't mean to pigeonhole the film as in like, that's just what this is. But just to acknowledge, because I'm such a distribution nerd, that we all need to ally ourselves with a niche in order to tap into a core audience and we expand from there. So I just don't want you to think I'm like, tell me about this Jewish film, Jewish film, Jewishness, Jewishness. Well, Liz, I was going to say, Liz, that was part of what really helped. But Ajo, do you want to start your, you want to, you want to. Well, I was just going to take one step back first and say, contextualize that. As, as an artist doing a lot of art about Jewish themes, I've been working for maybe 20 years doing exactly that. I remember listening to the CD Baby podcast in like 2000s, like at the very beginning of podcasts. I got into the CD Baby podcast about music distribution. And I remember this really, this episode that really, really made an impression on me about niche marketing. And they were talking about this woman who's a songwriter and she couldn't get any traction. She's also like a sailor who lived long-term on like small boats. And then she wrote an album that was like all about sailing and started selling it to other sailors and suddenly had this whole like true passionate audience of like, you know, hundreds or thousands of people. And I think I had always, you know, I'm not really a marketing person. I'm really like a lyrical artist. <laughs> so I think I'd always thought like, oh, reaching the most number of people is the most important thing. And to do that, you brought in. And so I really, I know it's a basic principle, but it really blew my mind to be like, you know, identifying your niche and going with it and not, and like really almost not narrowing, but starting very narrow in order to broaden out can be so empowering. So ever since I've been doing that, and so like one of my music projects has a lot of Jewish content and I've always booked tours that were like a rock club one night and a synagogue the next night. And it's just, it's helped me like fill in the gaps between cities and find people who might be naturally interested in the material. I never want to make art that's only in the Jewish world. But it's been really incredibly helpful to have this kind of built-in, you know, niche audience. So I knew when we went to, you know, distribute and market the film, whether with partners or and or on our own, that that would be one big element of our approach to it. So, Aero, do you want to take over from there? Here's some irony. So I ran a music distribution company for over 10 years called Nail Distribution, and I am a marketing person. I had to put together a million marketing books of people's albums, and I know so much about niche and all of that. And Asia and I get into these conversations about her wanting to do it broader and me wanting to stay, to kind of stay in the lane. In some ways we do, these, these happen because I think we both have different perspectives. But I really believe that if you can focus on an audience and find even 10 people, that can grow to 100 people, that can grow to 1,000 people, that can grow to 10,000 people, and so on and so forth. And so as an artist myself, in, with and independent of this film, I focus on making sure my work is all within my purview and the way I want it to be. So if somebody discovers this film, they might discover my 30 music videos that somehow, even though they're not related at all, have a connection. And same with Ajo's work with Girls in Trouble and her other things. Like, you know, it may, it's one, this is Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. We wanted both, ultimately, we had to trust each other, you know, to have it be a part of both of our body of work. And so the distribution was a whole nother thing, right? We had sort of, we had to lean into what it was to make it the best thing it could be. That's the bottom line. Like we had to, 
I knew we had to. And that was fine with me because I was like, it's wonderful. So what? I don't want to de-Jewishify it to make it more accessible. I think the other is incessantly interesting. You know, whoever the other might be, if it's a Jewish feminist, okay. Like if you're a Christian white dude, you might be like, what's a Jewish feminist like? I don't know. You know, like, (laughs) but I think that's really interesting. And I just came off making a web series called The Benefits of Gusbandry that was all about that. It was a true story taken from my own life about my turning 40 and having a relationship, kind of a healing, platonic, sort of intimate relationship with my gay best friend. And and I'd just gone through the sort of letting my story out and letting it not rule me anymore. And you know, and kind of engaging in a larger process with that. And it did find some distribution. I did a really strong marketing push with that. I found ways to, I had a publicist for that. We got into the New York Times. We got into all these places. And so when it came to marketing this film and find distribution for this film, I wanted us to have all the things that could possibly help us. So we found you, Liz Manischel, to help us kind of guide the film in its early days to think, okay, we know we have a niche film, but it's also pretty fucking amazing and unique. And anybody who watches it seems to really enjoy it. Maybe not everybody, but a lot, but you know, a large number of people are really like, what the hell did I just watch? And I want to, I love it. You know, this happens, it happens all the time, right? So we wanted to sort of lean into that, but also, you know, figure out, did it have a larger appeal beyond that? Did it not? So bringing you into the fore was really great because it kind of, you know, A, you, I think, told us that it maybe, maybe not was sort of the, the answer to that. And then you proceeded to, you know, go down 15 to 20 or 30 or 50. I don't know how many rabbit holes you went down to figure that out. But more importantly than that, you said, but I do know one person who's really tied into the Jewish festival world, whose name is Hedva Goldschmidt at GoTo Films in Israel, you know, who she's, she's kind of a big deal. We don't know, you know, I don't know, I can't make any guarantees, but she might really resonate with your project. You gave us great feedback. You really loved the film. We, that made us feel like we weren't going completely crazy. And then we, we hit up Hedva because of your recommendation. You connected her with us and she wound up being an unbelievable, her and her company, an unbelievable gateway to tons of Jewish film festivals. And, you know, from SF Jewish, which was at the Castro Theater, which was an incredible part of our festival run, to being in Estonia for the Black Nights of Film. Which was not uh, a Jewish cinema, fest- film festival. Not a Jewish festival, by the way. No. Which, just a European. Yeah. Just an art film festival. And it was Hedva connected us with that to ultimately Lincoln Center for New York Jewish, which without Hedva, there's no way in hell we would have gotten into that. So I think having, I mean, maybe we would have, maybe not. I don't know. But I have to say, there's so much, so much conversation. There's just so much stuff that goes on with that, you know. And And we had the good and bad fortune of having Bernie Madoff in the title. And so I think that, you know, people sometimes would respond intensely to that, you know, one way or the other. So, you know, so I think having, you know, kind of doing our due diligence with people that could help guide us through the through the, through the path. And then, you know, you and then Hedva has really kind of helped us. And then Ajo has her own audience because she spent years and years building her own audience. So part of why we even made the film was to have something to appeal to those that had been following her work forever. And we should say we hired a publicist. Do you want to talk a little yeah, bit about Heidi, Alicia? Yeah. So Heidi Vanderlee, she came on board to do our publicity. She had done my publicity for the benefits of Gusbadry and got our season finale into the New York Times it was pretty great and so you know we brought her on for this and she did some press around some of the festivals and ultimately did press around the release and got us into the New York Times again and so on and so forth so that was nice I mean there's things I might change about some of the approach of that it's it's tough to know what you're going to get <laughs> street we didn't really get a theatrical proper so the streaming kind of release it was it was you know i don't i personally i don't think we did it perfectly but we did the best that we could i think given the circumstances and the lack especially of money with, especially with covid and everything but i do think it's important like even with yeah. how hard it is to describe and how few comps there are and how niche it is like 
just to sort of, <laughs> I think we're both, Alicia and I are like, so in the muck of making art. And like, I, th- I think sometimes like we, <laughs> sometimes I just step back and I'm like our little like $130,000 film played at Lincoln Center, <laughs> played at the Castro theater and was basically like reviewed in the New York times. And so it really has kind of found its people in this. Incredible- in the Atlantic, right? We forgot about that. Yeah, we forgot about the Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing when you get a, a beautiful article in the Atlantic, like a month after your first festival release, it's sort of like, that was the best thing that could ever happen to us. And it happened to us when nobody could see the movie, which is the only problem, except people could sort of see the movie because it was that weird moment of, of film reality where nobody could leave the house. So we experienced in a way an advanced digital release. Yes. You know, right around, what was it? Your festivals. Yeah. Yeah. It was February, 2021 was our first digital release through Portland International Film Festival. And that wound up being, I think, viewable through all of North America. Right. And we did very well. I found out we sold like 500 tickets. That's an incredible thing for a film fest. We did, we might've been the best seller. I think it was actually kind of insane. They told us that. And then a month later, well, in between that, Bernie Madoff died. And then we were at the Ashland Independent Film Festival. And I think April of 2021, that was also available to all America, not just Ashland. A very different approach to festival streaming. And we won the narrative feature or audience award for that. So, you know, another, so it was very interesting in a way that was like, we had a lot of energy and the Atlantic had come out in between and all these things were going on. So he, I think the the uh, Atlantic writer had watched the premiere at Portland International Film Festival and that's where that came from. So it's been really interesting. I wish some of that momentum carried over to distribution. I feel like then we had a whole nother year of festivals and yeah, it was the Castro Lincoln Center, but it was also COVID. So getting people out to those screenings wasn't the same. I mean, I mean, we had maybe a fifth people in the room. I mean, it was amazing. Bob Mould came to the San Francisco show. It was very exciting. But still, like, at the end of the day, you know, in a year now, we would have had a pretty packed house. So we chose to go with it. I'm glad we went with the timing of it. We couldn't have held it back. Bernie Madoff dying when he died. The story was just, it was, it's now part of the history of the film. But, you know, will we change that? No. But it's, there's a lot of, you have to just kind of live with your trajectory, I think. That's the advice I would give to any filmmaker. Once you have one, once you see it coming, you know, I, I personally, I think Ajo and I both are manic creators enough that we just want things to be done and out there. And so we just focused on editing the film and getting the animation done through our incredible animator, Zach Margolis, and having VFX done, you know, during COVID that period of time. And when we dropped the film, I mean, we were just happy for it to be seen, I think, by anyone at all. It was great that it could happen. There is no Portland International Film Festival now, by the way. So we scooted in at a radar. Well, and at the top of this podcast, I'm not going to hold you to sharing how much you've made, but you did say you made a little money. And I, I'm going to make that jump that some of that came from theatrical and your your self-booked theatrical tour. Can you, there's a lot of filmmakers who want to do theatrical who A, don't even understand that it's possible for them. They don't know what a booker is. They don't know that there's that that you can reach out directly to theaters. But B, can you talk a little bit about why that was a financial win when most people think of theatrical as a gen like the narrative is that it's a loss for most filmmakers. Well, one thing I will say is that the Jewish film festivals, in part because they're kind of cultural events, do tend to have some kind of payment for the filmmakers. And so we, you know, split that with our agent Hedva. But that was definitely our first income was some and we're not talking big numbers, but and we've actually just to be really transparent, pretty much everything that's come in, we've put back into the film. So like 
you know, maybe we've made, uh, are you okay with me talking about numbers, Zero? Yeah. Maybe we've netted like 10,000 or something altogether. That's that's a lot. Sorry. I don't, I just, I want to acknowledge that that's a meaningful amount of money. It's a lot. The good. I don't have a, this is my first film, so I don't know. So that's amazing. And I think, and I, and that's not counting the money that we put, that's not against the money that we put into it from our own. It's not like we paid ourselves back and then made that. That's, I guess like we've grossed it. I didn't, I shouldn't say netted, but yes, it's been great. And then, you know, when we got distribution, we had to get E&O insurance. We, you know, had an opportunity to essentially like four wall our own venue in LA. And we ended up actually making back what we paid for the theater rental, which was incredible. But it's our bank account is really kind of still a business bank account that we're <laughs> using to to continue growing the project as opposed to something that we're getting like dividends from. And then in terms of the Jewish, well, in terms of the theatrical, yeah, some Aero has been doing some outreach to specific theaters. The stuff that I've generally been bringing in is the Jewish cultural element where like a community in a specific city has heard about the film and asked like, can we either, before we had a distribution deal, they would ask to license a streaming link. And so we would have a set fee for just essentially like a Vimeo. We'd make, create a special password for them and they'd give us like maybe between 350 and five, you know, sometimes less if it was a really, really small group, but that, and often we'd, you know, kind of offer a live Zoom Q&A or a pre-taped Zoom Q&A as part of that. You know, now that we have a distribution deal, we don't, we're not allowed to do that with streaming anymore, but we retained theatrical. So now we'll say, well, you can't stream it, but you can screen it at your Jewish community center or synagogue or at a local cinema. And then we just kind of work out the deal for each of those. By the way, that screening fee is really good. I just want to say that out loud. That's a 350 to 500 is a meaningful screening fee and it's and and it shows that there's demand and for the quality film. Well, and there's sort of, to me, it seems like an, an endless shelf life potentially for this project, which is part of what intrigued me about making it in the first place. It might not be as active at the beginning as it was at the beginning, but it still continues. There's like multiple screenings still in the books for this year that are going to happen over the next few months in the region at either through different, you know, synagogues or Jewish community centers where they're, the money is quite legit, I have to say. Like, so, I mean we've gotten paid up to like two grand for some of these screenings. So, you know, there'll be a Q&A involved, but that's that's like unbelievable to me. So, and that's sort of where the money is in some way because you're really, you know, you're helping create a conversation for them. And there's so few films that I think can do that. And with or without the Q&A, which of course the Q&A is the best part, but it does cost more. <laughs> you know, it's a really, the, the film is a conversation starter, right? It, it asks more questions than it answers. And it doesn't pander to the viewer. It's only 75 minutes long. It's short, or it doesn't pander, yeah, pander or the filmmaker or the viewer. It's short, it's efficient. I'm a music video editor. That's where I come from. I like to tell snappy stories. I sort of wanted to, you know, I hope I didn't go too fast with this. We tried to put the air back into it, but ultimately it didn't really feel like it needed to be longer just for the sake of being longer and what it is now I think it's the perfect length for a, a screening and a conversation so it's been interesting from my perspective someone who doesn't have a lot of ties to the Jewish community in that way to see how many different I mean how many different potential opportunities there are for this and and Ajo continues to work in that space so it becomes something that sort of goes along with her appearance. She's an author and she's an educator. And, you know, so this is like this great piece she can offer as part of what she does. Right, which is back to the power of the niche. I just want to encourage anyone listening who's thinking about this. Mm-hmm. I, like, you know, for, for us, it happens to be kind of cultural, religious, but it really could be, you know, anyone who's in charge of programming is going to have a budget. Like programming, in, unless it's, you know, there are certain grassroots things that don't have budgets, but generally people expect to pay a present 
presenter, an honorarium to appear no matter what the field is. And so whether it's the subject of your film that has its niche or something about your identity or, you know, it could be really anything. But I think thinking about like, where are there people who sort of has have the directive in their organization to like support X, Y, or Z and to bring people in to either nurture that community or inspire that community or train people or spread awareness about. And it's it's a great, I've just learned that through my life as a musician that thinking about where you align, not necessarily as much with the art world, which is such a different model, but with the sort of community organization world and then even nonprofit or educational world can be just so powerful. And I know we're almost out of time for like these general questions, but I have one and it's it's like gnawing at me, but I don't know what it is. So just asking for forgiveness <laughs> in, in advance of me trying to get it out. I've sat on meetings with the three of you, Laura Cuddy, who's not in, in this interview, producer of the film. And I was always very impressed by the efficiency and candor of the three of you. Like it's it's shocking. I've never seen those kind of machinations <laughs> move so quickly and so clearly. And it always felt like the three of you always knew exactly what you wanted and could say it out loud to each other. How did that was that natural? How did you create an environment where the three of you could be so honest and transparent with each other? I'm just going to say Alicia Rose is going to talk about astrology now. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I mean I don't I know, but there's probably something astrological. Well, Okay, I'm a Capricorn with Aquarius Moon, Aquarius Rising. Ajo is Aquarius with Capricorn Moon, and I can't remember, is it Libra Rising? Anyway, whatever. But the point, no, no, no. Uh, here's the thing. So, I mean, I've been directing for about 12, 13 years now. And over the past seven years, I've been working with Lara Cuddy as my producer for just about everything. And she and I have a fantastic working relationship. And really, like, I mean, we just made a multi-hundred thousand dollar commercial production together in the last month. And I'm editing that right now. We work together. She's made tons of music videos. She's incredible. So we have already a powerful, trusting, totally on the same page relationship because we have worked together a thousand times. When I came into this project, you know, it was just me and Ajo at first. But then once I realized we were both whirling dervish our way into something that was going to really happen, I was like, okay, well, we're really going to do this. I'm going to bring Lara into the conversation because if I want to do something, Lara is involved. And so because we had this prior relationship that was so strong and Ajo is, you know, she, I mean, she trusted me. I, I don't want to say like she trusted me. And then through me, she trusted Lara. She didn't know me, but I'd been around for a long time and she had known my work for some time. And she had the interest of wanting to work with me. So it wasn't completely random, you know, and I have experience. I'm good at what I do. And Laura's good at what she does. And, you know, so it just came down to, I think, us feeling like, I think she had never thought about it as a film. So when, when this idea came to her, came through me to her, and ultimately to the three of us, you know, she kind of just let us do what we do. But we always had good conversations. And I will say we came up with one thing I'll recommend to all filmmaking teams where if there are two Alicia's or like two Daniels or two whatever, then you have to, you know, share control and share power in a situation. Sometimes one person is gonna like get a little wacky on one side, other person is not always perfect. But we came up with a, a system because we needed to trust and see it through all the way called problem children. So if you're ha if there's a problem child, we would say we, I have a problem child. And then we would have a separate conversation where we would address whatever it was and kind of go through the problem solving of like how to deal with like the hurt feelings or somebody stepping on somebody's toes. And so before we would get to you, we 
would deal with our problem children, not with abuse, but with love. And so we would handle it really in an accommodating way that just allowed us to be able to all speak our freaking truth and like have a real conversation. Laura and I have been through that. Ajo and I have been through that. We've all been through that together. And I think that that gave us a place where, you know, for the most part, we knew what we wanted. We've had lots of conversations, right? Like lots of times chatting about what the possibilities are. But, you know, because I have a marketing background and Laura's, you know, made 10 features and so on and so forth. Like we kind of, you know, we knew what we were doing. We're smart people. But at the same time, there was a lot of trust between us, all three of us. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we range, you know, and I'm 46. And so, and Laura and Alicia are just a few years older than me. And so we've been working as artists for like decades and we've been through a lot of bullshit with a lot of people and we know our priorities mm-hmm. i think we all care about people we're not interested in working with assholes we're not interested in being assholes we're not interested in like <laughs> intense hierarchical systems or shame or anybody lording anyone's power over anyone else like we're all collaborative people who also have like real visions and the other thing i'll just say in terms of like the efficiencies i feel really so lucky that You and I, I think both share this like decisiveness, Alicia, that like, Mm -hmm. we are just like, oh, that works. That doesn't work. There's a problem here. Let's deal with it. (laughs) And neither of us (laughs) out into indecisiveness or like we, we don't really get stuck, especially because we can bounce things off the other and trust the other. And that I think has just really helped us like actualize our ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think as a director, I'll, I'll just, I'll ping this on really quick as a director, like that's my biggest strength is that decisiveness. Right. And so you know, when you find other people that can also trust it and have their own opinions, but be able to kind of bend to be open to other points of view and then be equally as decisive once you've considered those options, whether that's an adaptation or an evolution of your point of view. But maybe that's female filmmaking, Liz. I don't know. <laughs> with that, I will transition. So with our last five minutes, this will probably have to be rapid fire as well. And some of them are okay you you guys you're gonna figure it out you're gonna figure out how to adapt these questions to both of you but the first question is what's the first film you've ever made how do you feel about it now but maybe it's what's the first piece of art you've ever made and how do you feel about it now my first short film is called the gift of gravity it's available very minorly i love the way it looks i hate so many things about it i would i would have just made a different film my first film but i'm glad i did it for lots of different reasons i actually and I regret it <laughs> for other reasons Sorry. <laughs> I actually kind of lied a little bit because I did about five years ago make a film called Chavruta, a drummer's bat mitzvah with a filmmaker named Jody Darby and a drummer named Lisa Schoenberg. And it was about Lisa getting her bat mitzvah tutored by me and officiated by me when she turned 40 and her teaching me how to play rock drums in exchange for me teaching her how to chant Torah and teaching her about our traditions. And it's like a 15 minute video that you can short film, whatever that you can watch for free on Vimeo. And I feel like I actually really learned a lot about like editing and notes and storytelling through that. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And also just how fun it is to collaborate with amazing uh, artist friends, especially women. Can I do a slight redo? Yeah, sure. Shit. <laughs> Just that I, 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 at the point I made my first film, I had made 25 music videos. So my first music video was more of like a magical moment of understanding what I could do and how I could do it. My first film was trying to make that work with somebody who was paying for it, whose vision overrode mine. So yeah. that was the problem with the film. It wasn't so much that I hated the film. It was not getting to make the film I wanted to make. And so that was a lesson I learned. I didn't have to learn twice. Can you both share one piece of good 
filmmaking advice or art creation advice and one piece of bad filmmaking or art creation advice? Yes, I'll do this first. Good advice is something that I learned at a creative capital training years ago. They're an amazing artist supporting organization. And they said, basically, when you're putting your art out in the world for whatever, festivals, residencies, distributors, whatever, you should be getting nine no's for every yes. And if you're not, you're not aiming high enough. And it really reframed it so that instead of it being like a mark of shame with every rejection, it was actually a sign that like you're doing your job. I mean, that's that's the job. I really appreciated that. And I think about it every day as I constantly experience rejection. <laughs> and the bad advice, <laughs> I think like, you know, right every day, no matter what, I think that is complete patriarchal bullshit and that it's okay to be cyclical. It's okay to for things to, to change. It's okay to have a day that you just need to take off and that listening to your own inner rhythms is kosher. <laughs> okay, for me, let me think for a second. Good advice I've gotten or good advice I have for other people? Either one. I would mostly just say, A, being part of the conversation is be- better than not being part of the conversation. And you have to join it to be there. So finish what you start, make something. Yeah. I don't care if it's a music video. I mean, that's how I taught myself filmmaking, basically. I'd taken stuff in early college a million years ago, but I retaught myself through like one Super 8 class and making a gazillion music videos. I started a career that way. And now look at the Daniels just won all the Oscars. They did the same thing. I met them in Portland when they made a Shins video. I lent them my art director. I mean, the world is that small, right? Like we're all doing that kind of work. But what are your ideas that are going to really like shine, you know? So, so, you know, align yourself with people who can, you know, see, see bigger and better than you, you know, like you have to have people there to facilitate your vision and they, and they have, and you have to facilitate theirs. It's a collaborative process. You know, it's not one person being the genius. It's everybody recognizing everybody's genius. So we can make a really fucking great thing. Bad advice. Oh God. Oh, I'm trying to have had some really questionable moments. Bad advice to, you know, just, you know, shut up and take it, basically. That's the worst advice I've ever gotten with male, like, EPs who've expected me to not talk about their bad behavior. I have talked about, brought their bad behavior to them. I had, like, somebody as an EP be too forward with my talent and my producer on a commercial set, and, you know, I brought it up to their attention, and they've denied it, and then dismissed me from their roster two weeks later, you know, they would probably give me the advice that, you know, shouldn't say anything. But you know what? Fuck that. I would rather have a more complicated, longer swerve of a career that takes longer, but is from from what I really want it to be. I mean, this is my ultimate retirement dream career. So, you know, (laughs) I was already in the music business for 20 years. So, you know. Well, we're at time, so let's skip to the last question, which is, is making movies hard? Oh, yes, but it's it's so hard, but it's the best kind of difficult there can be because it, you get to utilize your brain and, you know, actually elasticize creativity and find new ways to approach something, solve a thousand problems. For those with ADD or ADHD specifically, it's like the best thing ever because, you, you know, you can learn how to edit to solve that problem. You can learn how to do color to solve that problem. You can basically figure out lots of ways with a very small team to do it all yourself. So it's really hard and it takes forever and it costs a lot of money and sometimes not as much money as you think, but it, it's the best kind of difficult you can be a part of. Agree. Hard and almost everything that's meaningful and important is hard. And this kind of storytelling and just sharing of like human experience is such an important, important thing. And like, just so absolutely worth being hard. And there's so much joy in in the hardness. Liz, what was your biggest takeaway from your talk with Alicia and Alicia? I love them. They were one of my first clients when I started to do my consulting work. And I just started with like an hour consultation with them a while ago. And then they hired me to do sales and like they trusted me. 
And I just think they're a very effective team of very talented individuals who are driven and really good communicators. Like, I guess the one of the things I've learned that's a fantastic byproduct of consulting and doing sales is that I get a witness what makes a team work and what makes a team not work, putting films together. And it's like they are so clear about the way whether they're happy or unhappy or what they want to do, what decision they want to make. They're just so incredibly efficient. And I talk a little bit a bit in a little bit about that in the interview, I guess. So my biggest takeaway is a personal one for them in that, like, I believe in them. I believe in them as artists. I believe in them as filmmakers and that everyone should go see a Kaddish for Bernie Madoff wherever they like to watch movies. I think it's really amazing that two Alicia J's found themselves and were good collaborators and made a movie together. I think that's crazy that there's two Alicia J's. And it's confusing when you talk to them, but they have like their own little code, like they call like J-Row and J-Raw, or I don't, I don't even, I still don't know after years of knowing them. And then their producer, Laura Cuddy, who's equally fantastic, just not in the interview because of my weird mandate of only doing at most two people. Um, it's on me. It's on me why she's not there. She has just a, a code with the two of them that's like very efficient and cool. Yeah, they found each other. I, I don't even know if they talk about it, but one mistakenly received email for the other one or something. Oh, that's Like so it was funny. total kismet how they connected. And it, it it it's a beautiful partnership that they created because of it. I should also note that they both have the same initials, AJR. Yes. So it's not even just AJs. It's like Alicia it's J. A it's like <laughs> crazy. It's crazy. I mean, it's hard enough to find someone that you can collaborate with at all. But like, you know, even crazier to find someone with like basically the same name as you that you collaborate with. Nuts. But, you know, without any more delay, it is time for everyone's favorite segment on the show. The game. So for people who don't know, and, you know, this will now become your favorite segment. If you don't know what it is, it's the game. And we play it in this way. It's invented by Eric, our producer. And what it is, is a indie filmmaking scenario, an indie filmmaking conundrum that you find yourself in and you basically need to solve it. So they can be very elaborate with like lots of backstory and everything. And then we basically have to figure out what we would do in the situation outlined by Eric or sometimes by a listener. We've had a listener submitted questions for the game as well. They're completely blind. So Liz has not heard this question before. She's going to take notes because this one's not so long, but like some of them are very long. And yeah, Liz will go first and come up with her solution. And then I'll come up with my solution. I haven't read this question yet either. I'm going to read it for the first time right now. And here we go. You are on the last few days of a low budget film that you've been hired to direct. First off, congratulations. The writer and a lot of the cast have already left to go back home since you're on the home stretch. Okay. The last two days require the remaining cast crew to film a romantic kiss on a dock overlooking the ocean, the exact spot where the film opened and the two characters met. Sweet. However, an unseasonal storm has rolled in and the weather conditions are horrible. You can't get a hold of the writer due to the weather. To the weather. Do you? A. Rewrite the final scene yourself and place the kiss indoors, hoping that it turns out the way the writer hoped for. B. Find more money and wait to shoot the final scene. C. Take your chances and shoot the scene on the dock in the storm. D. Other. What do you do, director? What do you do? All right. I will definitely be able to get in touch with this writer, but I'm going to ignore that part of that question. I mean, there's no world where I'm not going to be able to get in touch with this writer, but it's fine. In the world of the question, I can't reach this writer. My immediate instinct, well, 
firstly was to check the contract with the writer. Do I have oh. the freedom to change things? Can I change the script? So that's question number one. Do you have the rights to deviate from the script? Two, my immediate impulse was to move it in front. So so it's essentially either in front of a window overlooking the same spot or in front of a window where you put a green screen behind it so that you can recreate that it's overlooking the same spot. And I think that's an equally magical moment, right? As long as there's a landmark in that opening scene that identifies this dock and that exact space in that dock, like a flagpole or like, I don't know, a bench or just something that identifies this spot in the dock as where they met. And then you bring them inside and you have the kiss in front of the window. And maybe even you have an opportunity to add even more context, which is like, are they kissing on a date? Are they kissing at their wedding? Are they kissing? You know, what is it? What is this last moment? What is the context, the new context for their relationship? And why are they indoors? But this this does not seem very difficult to me. It does not need to be at the exact same spot. And you never want to risk the health and safety of your crew. And you can do a lot with green screens if you need to. Nice. I love it. Green screen was my instant first thought. But like, the other thing I was thinking about was it, basically if the weather is like you, he also said you have two days to shoot this scene. Yeah. So you have two full days and there is no way in hell you need two full days to shoot, shoot a kiss scene. Like you can figure out a way to shorten the dialogue, shorten the shot list, whatever. So what the way I would pro- probably approach it is like to see on day one, like, can we shoot outside? Like, is mm-hmm. it possible? Because there is something really, like, could be potentially thematic of, like, the opening of the movie they met and it was so beautiful. The end of the movie they meet, it's, like, crazy stormy and they kiss romantically in the crazy stormy weather oh, and everything. Yeah. Like, like, I could see Like, forces of really, nature, kind of, that yeah. kind of thing. Like, it could be a really beautiful ending to the movie. So I would probably try to see if that could work. And then if it's just too dangerous and, like, isn't going to happen or whatever, then, yeah, the green screen. I, but I probably wouldn't even worry about, like, shooting it in front of a window. I would just go full green screen and then just, you know, like, shoot plates later the, that they could use uh, for that. I just have this, because I'm such a weird rom-com dork. I, I, I can see you being on the dock and then you, they lean in to kiss and then you pull out and you're indoors. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I think it's may not be much of a dramatic reveal, but you can see. And then it's like you find out they're at the reception of their wedding, like or whatever mm. it is. Like, yeah. I think oh, it that's could add totally context. Right? Yeah, that, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. You you are like living and breathing rom-coms. I that really love that. Really, <laughs> you know, perfect example. I have seen that many times in rom-coms. Yeah. Well, I don't know. What do you guys think? Is, is this how you'd approach it? Any other solutions to this problem? I feel like these are getting easier. I don't know. Eric, <laughs> what are you doing? Why challenge us, for God's sakes? I mean, I like this question, but no, it's, it's not. It's just not that hard. You know, I feel like there's lots of is solutions but maybe that's the point is like we give good solutions i don't know but yeah definitely don't need more money screw more money you can do it with what you got you don't need no more money i like every producer here liz and Ulrich. don't need more money hire us we will make it happen or just in general just hire us just (laughs) just hire us well but along those lines if you have a question that's 
harder than what Eric has been doling out or just feedback or a comment, you can send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Wanted to shout out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. They publish your log line to a network of industry professionals. They have consultation courses, they have contests, and they even have a top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. Go to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Alicia J. Rose, Alicia Joe Rabins for coming on the show, and Laura Cuddy just for being awesome. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing all the editing. Thanks to our producer, Eric Tums, for also being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. You could just say that. You could just say, I don't know anything. And then we yeah. can talk about that. Yeah. Everyone knows I don't know anything. That's not new. No one um, knows anything. No, except <laughs> no for Tyrion Lannister. We're all just dumb. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.